0: Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz. I want to welcome all of our viewers from around the world. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon to all all of you. If you are joining us for the first time and want more information about our show, please visit our website at deadtalklive.com. Visit us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch, where this show simultaneously streams to every night. And if you're on YouTube right now, please go ahead and subscribe. If you have yet to do so, hit the thumbs up button if you enjoy this broadcast. I got to say, as I uh, start to stream, I look over at the chats that are going on and the Instagram. As soon as I hit start stream, you know, I see my mom's name. (laughs) You know, God bless her. She's, She's a mom. And it doesn't matter that I'm a 46-year-old man, you know, and she doesn't understand a word of what I'm saying. She, uh, she tunes in faithfully every night to uh, watch. And uh, I don't have an explanation for that. I guess I kind of do. I'm a parent. I kind of get it. I kind of get it. Let me welcome our Instagram people. Of course, my mom is watching. Welcome uh, to DJ who's joining us, Mary Grace, uh, Maged. Call Me is giving us a wave. Welcome, Call Me. Mandel is also waving at us. Umil29 has just joined us. We have our lovely moderators, uh, Singer Chick, uh, Khaleesi, Saz, and Marie. Thank you guys for a great job for what you guys do every night. We have CC Weezy joining us on YouTube. On the Facebook side, we have Colette, Phillip uh lisa is with us welcome to everybody hope everyone is doing well uh it is thursday right yeah it's thursday here in the united states another buck-ass cold night uh you know we got more snow ice and no joke you guys who watch me know i don't go to bed till like seven o'clock in the morning and when it started uh it wasn't snow it was an ice storm And within uh, 15, 20 minutes after the ice storm started, you could literally walk outside my house with a pair of skates and be perfectly fine. It's crazy. Just absolutely crazy. Uh, So, anyway. uh, Khaleesi writes, you're right. It's Thursday night. We have episode two of Clarice. Thank you for reminding me, Khaleesi. Uh, Something to watch tonight. Uh, if you guys did not watch the series premiere of Clarice last week, you, uh, still have a chance to get caught up. Today's episode two, uh, the premiere offered a lot of potential, great premiere, and I think it's going to get much better. As I previously stated, uh, Michael Cudlitz is going to be coming back on this show sometime in the near future to talk about Clarice. Also, the character who plays Catherine. Uh, If you guys remember, if you've seen Silence of the Lamb, Catherine was the girl that Clarice saved from the well. Catherine is, uh, her character is in Clarice, the TV show that just premiered last week, played by Marnie uh, Carpenter. Marnie is also going to be a guest of ours in April. So we're going to be having a lot of guests from the show Clarice, which is going to get hot. I'm telling you guys, this show is going to get hot. Don't wait too long where you have to do a lot of catching up. Go ahead and start watching it, especially if you're a fan of the Silence of the Lambs. Don't expect the name Hannibal to be mentioned on the show. Uh, Because of an article we read last week, we found out because of naming rights issues, Uh, CBS's Clarice is not allowed to use the name Hannibal Lecter. So you're not going to hear much mention of him. But you are going to get a lot of mentions of Buffalo Bill and the trauma that Buffalo Bill caused Clarice. Now in my opinion it's a good workaround. If you guys watch Silence of the Lambs you know that there were kind of two antagonists. The big one of the movie was Buffalo Bill. That was the serial killer that they were trying to catch, but it brought Clarice to good old Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, brilliantly, I might add. He won an Oscar for it. Uh, but who do you guys traumatize? Who do you guys think traumatized good old Clarice more? Her having to show, you know, face down with Buffalo Bill at the end of Silence of the Lambs? Or was it her encounters with Hannibal the Cannibal? Uh, I think Hannibal getting into her mind caused more of a mind... I can't... I don't... I want to say the word, but... You know, if you say it, you know, know, a mind screw, okay, with Clarice, than Buffalo Bill did. That's my opinion. But they're not allowed to mention him. Uh, Zoe is with us on Twitter who says, This helps take my mind off the lack of power, food, and water, and cold and the coldness in Texas. Zoe, dude, my heart's out, goes out to everyone in Texas. I hope you guys stay safe. It's horrible what's going on down there. Uh, it's an absolute shit show if you're keeping up with the news. And, uh, my wife brought to my attention, apparently the mayor of some town in Texas tweeted some really shitty remarks about how everyone has to fend for themselves. Now, this is a mayor, and uh, he's just obviously completely clueless. He has since resigned. His wife has lost her job. Uh, his family is getting death threats. I do not agree with the death threats part. What bewilders me is that this mayor in some town in Texas is completely clueless to what his responsibilities are as a mayor of a town to the people that elected him to become mayor of this town. I don't know his name. This was mentioned to me by my wife in passing. I couldn't believe what she was telling me, but it is true. Uh, It did happen. This guy did say it. uh, Telling the people, you know, you got to fend for yourself. Stop depending on the government to bail you out. These are people who are freezing, hungry, uh, and just need basic. This is not. He called the word he used the word socialism. It's not socialism when you've got your constituents freezing to death because of acts of God and weather they cannot control. They have no control over the power company. What do you want them to do? That's totally ridiculous. Um anyway, I did not mean to get into that rant, but you know, Zoe, our hearts are out to you and everybody in Texas. I hope this thing passes quickly and uh you guys get your power get your heat back stay safe in the meantime and i really mean it i i'm thinking about you guys uh singer chick writes the show uh kind of leads me to think that buffalo bill got to her worst because he is who's haunting her memories for what we see now and yeah that's what they're going to show you on this tv show because they're not allowed to mention hannibal so, of course, they're going to shift the focus from Hannibal to Buffalo Bill. Uh, it makes perfect, perfect sense. Welcome to Elna on Facebook. Colette uh, is also saying, had a few bad days of agony, just managed to get up today. Uh, Lizzie is also responding to people. I'm just looking at the chats. They're coming in quickly. People are coming into the rooms on Instagram so let's try to take your minds off the outside world and all the crap that's going on in the real world and let's immerse and so let's immerse ourselves in some headlines (laughs) i don't know if that's going to make you feel better or worse but i promise it's not news fact related going on in the world type of headlines it's Related to the entertainment industry. So I'm going to try to do my best to distract you guys. So, uh, first on the list is uh, Kirkman. The Walking Dead, Robert Kirkman, says he mishandled, and they put a big spoilers, character. In issue number eight of The Walking Dead Deluxe, Kirkman admits he mishandled a key character, and now he finally understands the dislike that they received. Uh, There's a warning spoiler. Through the Walking Dead Deluxe Edition, fans are reliving the adventures of Rick Grimes as he makes his way from Atlanta and eventually forms the alliance that will have to fend off sinister villains like the Governor, Negan, and the Whisperers. The colored version adds a lot more texture to the story and from a narrative standpoint, it's interesting reconciling how the book ended, how the TV shows are adapting the zombie world, and how it was making the journey with these characters initially. And in The Walking Dead Deluxe Edition number 8, franchise co-creator and mastermind Robert Kirkman takes time in the letter section to address one particular character and how he mishandled her rick's wife Lori. all right now he's talking about the comic books we all know that Lori was not a big fan favorite on a tv show either the issue focuses on the aftermath of rick being told by Lori she's pregnant however before rick has a chance to ask questions knowing she had an affair with shane she rushed to let the rest of the camp know that did not happen on the, t- on the series. He eventually chats with Dale about it, who asks if, Shane, if it's Shane. Although Rick is well aware of the possibility, if not probability, that Shane is the father. Rick just wants to ignore it and live a life of hope and happiness amid the Walker infestation, ordering dale to drop the issue while dale is sympathetic to rick's cause to drop the issue she largely avoided the topic of her relationship with shane and the chance he might be the father at first kirkman writes that he thought audiences would be sympathetic to her story but as he admits now that his execution was off he says he was simply trying to show her state of mind, especially how lost she was, which is why she rushed to tell them the news. As he admits, when he reread the print, Laurie's actions did strike him as cold, and uh, yeah, that's kind of odd. You find out you're you're pregnant. It's a topic that you're avoiding with with your husband. But you go out and rush to tell the rest of the people you are traveling with in the zombie apocalypse. It's always bugged me on average how readers never really liked Lori. I always saw her as a more sympathetic than the readers did, he wrote. I never really understood why my opinions of her never quite got through in the work reading scenes like this i finally start to understand i feel like i was a young writer and didn't really handle lori the way i thought i did kind of a shame as much as he chalks it up to inexperience several fans also had the same issue with her depiction on the television show no kidding while that indicates that some of the fans more object to her larger character arc, Kirkman confesses he could have handled her development better to make her more empathetic leading character. And my question to that article and Kirkman's revelation is, I guess that must have come, you know, the comic books came way before the series. By the time the series came around, they re- he really played Laurie The same way she was written in the comic books. Uh, So I guess this revelation did not come till well after the TV series as well. So, but it's understandable. He tried to execute Laurie to be a sympathetic character that most readers can empathize with. It just did not come through. It did not come through in the comic books. And as we all know, by her lack of popularity on the TV show, it did not come through there as well. Personally, my take on Lori was indifferent. I did not hate her. I did not particularly love her character either. I was indifferent to her. I could sympathize that she was in a bad spot, but I also disagree... With the writing and, and it says a lot about her character that, you know, f- less than five weeks after being told that her husband is dead, she, you know, starts having sex with his best friend. I mean, honestly, what does that tell you about someone's character? You know, f- less than five weeks. Five weeks is when Rick comes out of the coma. And they've been going at it for a while. So that's where my problem with the character of Laurie Grimes comes in. Uh, Colette writes, I agree with you, Viz. She thought he was dead. And exactly, you know, he's dead. Grieve. Uh, Don't go however many days or a week or two and then start having sex with your dead, supposed dead husband's best friend and before rick showed up she did not i'm talking about the tv show now the character of Lori, played by sarah calles who she did great uh did not show any kind of uh remorse this is before rick showed up you know the brief times we saw them in the woods very brief times that we saw them together uh but when rick showed up that all changed and she just wanted to make it all disappear like it never happened whatever happened between her and shane never happened and of course shane yeah he did he he broke he mentally lost it but hey she forgot that he's a he's a person too he showed he has feelings for her he saved her life and her son's life by rescuing them out of the apocalypse and leading them to safety and she just you know disregarded his feelings as well. So she was in a tough spot, but it's a spot that she put herself into. That's my two cents in regards to Laurie. Uh Colette writes, unless it happened before it all kicked off. That is a good point and we don't know. And it's something that Kirkman never addressed. Were Shane and Laurie having an affair before the apocalypse, before Rick got shot, were those two doing something? That It was never implied uh, that that is what happened on the TV show. Uh, but you've got to ask yourself, you know, could it have happened? We're, it's something we will never find out. Maybe Kirkman, I don't think he even knows who he wrote the characters... Uh, so if he does come out with something, it it might not have been his mindset when he was actually writing the novels. And keep in mind, Robert Kirkman is a huge writer for for the show as well. So anyway, let's move on. This I thought was interesting. Ten body horror movies that broke all the rules. So that headline, along with this picture... Which is just way the hell out there. Uh, like, okay, I gotta at least skim through this and see what this is about. If nothing else, just take a look at these weird-ass pictures. As popular as horror movies are, it goes without saying that some subgenres are more accessible and approachable than others, with, with some only appealing to a smaller niche niche of gore hounds. And I have to admit, this whole body horror uh, subgenre, it does have a very small following. One such subset is uh, body horror, which is typically defined by a focus on the human body being altered, mutated, and otherwise reconfigured for our squeamish entertainment. So for those of you who are asking what the hell body horror is, there you go. This can happen in any number of ways. An alien infection, a scientific experiment gone wrong, or interdimensional sadomasochists. And I would love a definition of what interdimensional sadomasochists are. Because, wow. Wow. Anyway, but in each case, human beings end up being transformed far from their original composition. Body horror remains a niche subgenre not only because of its willfully, viscerally, and disgusting content, but also the practical challenges of executing mutation effects on a budget. Meaning that these low budget films just cannot afford. The effects that need to go in it to make it, you know, come out the way they're envisioning. Nevertheless, the stronger and more memorable entries into the body horror genre are fondly remembered for how creatively they offered up a vision of bodily manipulation, whether splattered with gore or not though body horror hasn't ever been defined by a particular strict set of rules these 10 films nevertheless defied expectations to deliver to deliver groundbreaking fiercely original and completely hideous entries into the cult subgenre and let's just quickly go through this list the thing i'm sorry the thing, yeah, we see a lot of body disfigurement. It's not body horror. Uh, it's not. Let's see what else. Hellraiser. All right, yeah. This comes from the mind of Clive Barker, brilliant writer, twisted brain with an extraordinary imagination. He's he's an amazing writer. He made this movie as well. Yeah, this. Yeah, this definitely falls under the uh, the body horror subgenre, and it is if you're not if you're if you're a squeamish person and you've never seen Hellraiser, don't. <laughs> you gotta have a strong stomach for it. The Human Centipede. Uh, I have not watched this, even for the standards of body horror. Tom Six's The Human Centipede. Is truly nauseating stuff despite actually being considerably less explicit than you might expect the film revolves around a deranged surgeon who kidnaps three individuals in an attempt to perform an experimental surgery which will create a human centipede okay that explains it all the fly again Like the thing, uh, I I don't know, I just don't put this on uh, the body horror list. It's a horror movie, but it's about the transformation of a scientist who does an experiment that goes horribly wrong, and his DNA gets meshed in with a fly, and we see his transformation. Could it be considered body horror? Yeah, you guys got to keep in mind... When movies like The Fly, 1986, the 90s, even the early 2000s, body horror was not a term. The, body horror is a fairly recent subgenre term that someone came up with to classify all the different subsets of horror movies. Yeah, trust me, growing up, uh, I never heard of the term body horror. Never. Not until recently. Number six, Akira. This is an anime film. is a legendary film for many reasons. Not least, it's enormously influential stature in the realms of both cyberpunk and animation, but also as the rarest of animated body horror movies. Ooh, I don't know if you guys are into anime, but if you guys want to watch uh, some body horror anime, there you go. Videodrome. This is a movie I have seen, Videodrome. It's very good. It uh, stars James Wood. It's a Cronenberg film. Uh, let's see. It follows Max, the president of a small TV station, who discovers the titular broadcast signal displaying a continuous feed of violence and torture, which ultimately, ultimately causes viewers to witness increasingly disturbing hallucinations. It's basically mind control done subconsciously by subliminal messaging. That's a nice, nice, neat way to wrap it up. And here's to the picture that we saw in the beginning of this article. I mean, this picture for our viewers on Instagram, who I'm sorry, you could only see the screen real estate that Instagram offers. For the rest of you guys, you can see this picture. And... Uh, I don't even know how to describe this. So, I'm going to do my best for our Instagram folks. Picture a mermaid. Okay? Now, instead of uh, a fin and tail, the bottom half of this woman's body is the mouth of a very horror, scary-looking alligator. That's the best way I can describe it Uh, and I'm still way off (laughs) Uh, Lizzie writes the evil dead gave me nightmares Uh, JD Smith on Twitch writes Cronenberg the father of body horror the fly was directed by Cronenberg yes Cronenberg is a genius he's he's an amazing amazing filmmaker number three on the list Annihilation Alex Garland's superb sci-fi horror film, Annihilation Once Again, gave body horror a dramatic reinvention, given that most of its reshapings of the human body aren't repulsive explosions of gore, but often oddly beautiful. The film is centered around a group of scientists who enter a mysterious area called The Shimmer, a zone created by the arrival of a meteor several years prior. As it turns out, the shimmer experts sorry exerts a profound effect on any living thing which enters it, fundamentally changing their DNA by mixing it with anything else in the vicinity. Good concept right there. Number two is spring. I have not seen this either. The film that puts horror wonder kids, Justin Benson, and Aaron Moorhead on the map, Spring is a rarest of body horror films that also doubles as a red-blooded romance. As in, the film is as much a love story as it is one about revolting mutations. Alright, let's see what's number one on the list. And it's not letting me get to number one. Okay, there we go. Tetsuo. Definitely never heard of this. Tetsuo, the Iron Man. Years before Tony Stark graced cinema screens, there was Tetsuo, the Iron Man. Has anybody out there ever heard of this? Uh, The singular 1989 cyberpunk brainchild of director Shinya Sakamoto. The film follows a man who kills a metal fetish, fe, sorry, fetishist with a car and in turn finds himself being progressively transformed into a man-metal hybrid. Now, that's, that's some nuts. That's some crazy stuff there. Uh, J.D. Smith writes, Tetsuo is nuts. It goes 90 miles per hour without a helmet. Yeah, it sounds that way. C.C. Uh, Wheezy writes, nope, never heard of it. And it's no surprise, these are some really off-the-path movies, so not surprising that a lot of us have not heard of them. Uh, Merle, Michael Worker, the awesome Rooker. Uh, sees, oh, sorry, The Walking Dead, 10 hideous, sorry, 10 hidden details you missed about Merle. Since he only had a short stint on the show, some fans may have missed a detail or two about Daryl's brother, Merle Dixon. A couple of characters only appear in the Walking Dead series, but are absent in the comics. One of those is Merle Dixon, the hunter who appears from season 1 to season 3, and of course he was not in season 2, is introduced as an action-craving racist and misogynistic apocalypse survivor. Due to his personality, no one tolerates him except his brother, Daryl, and he tolerates him at a very fine, you know, barely tolerable level. Merle grows to become one of the TV's most villainous henchmen, when he begins working for the governor, even though it's hard for to forget Merle and his reckless behavior, a couple of details about the character might have whizzed past viewers. Some details might have been forgotten too. After all, it's been close to eight years since the character was killed off. Okay, number ten. Daryl's accurate prediction. Merle causes plenty of trouble as soon as he's introduced in Season 1, Episode Guts. He fires recklessly at walkers, assaults T-Dog, and declares himself the boss of the group. The group that is stuck on top of that rooftop. Despite his lack of strategic action, Merle is feared by several characters because of his impulsive, violent outbursts. In the first season, Daryl declares nobody can kill Merle but Merle. This turns out to somehow be true when Merle decides to kill the governor in season three. He stands no chance and he knows it. As expected, he gets captured by Martinez before being shot in the chest by the governor, intentionally shot in the chest, left for him to turn, so his brother can find him as a walker. That's how devious and sinister the governor was. Number nine, he doesn't share a scene with Daryl until the third season. Wow. That's, that's true. How many of you guys put that together? Uh, we don't see Merle and Daryl together in season one of The Walking Dead. It's just, for me as a fan, it's just one of those things that, you know, you sort of gloss over. The scene where Daryl kills a reanimated Merle will always be fresh in the minds of fans. Daryl and Merle talk about each other a couple of times, but it takes a while for them to be seen in the same location together. And season two was that hallucination. I guess they're not counting that. When uh, Daryl gets knocked off the horse, and he's trying to drag himself up from that, uh, up that hill, and he hallucinates seeing his brother Merle. Uh, I believe that was season two. Uh, Nervous Nelly was the name of the horse. Uh, Colette writes, Daryl seemed to be avoiding him. C.C. Wheezy writes, until Woodbury, yep. All right, number eight is the first original main character to be killed off. Merle is the first of the show's original main characters to die. The second is Beth Green. You know, that's kind of a very subjective uh, detail right there, because Amy was part of the original group and you know she was in several episodes before being killed off uh at the end of the fourth episode into the fifth and uh mm, i would say she was probably the first ones of the original gang to get killed off not merle so i'm gonna argue against that one number seven his kill count Merle's confirmed on-screen kill add to a total of 25. These statistics only account for the non-zombified humans. Uh, So damn, this guy put down 25 human beings. The number of walkers that Merle has killed remains unknown. Most of his kills happened during his time as one of the governor's henchmen, of course, before his final shootout scene, he states that he killed many people, some before the apocalypse. Given his general demeanor, it should be assumed that the number of kills that happen off-screen or before the series far outnumber those that the viewers have seen. Number six, number of jobs he had. That's kind of irrelevant, but anyway... Atlanta survivor, survivor camp and Green Family boss farm boss Shane Walsh states that Merle has made great strides as a drug dealer prior to the apocalypse. The first job he has is that of a soldier. After being dismissed for punching a sergeant, he is court-martialed and sentenced to 16 months behind bars. After the apocalypse, Merle works as a supply runner at the Atlanta Survivor Camp. He then becomes a guard in Woodbury before joining the Governor's Woodbury Army, where his rank is Lieutenant. Number five, the Breaking Bad reference. Yes, the references that we got in the early parts of The Walking Dead revolve around Merle and Daryl. Merle has a history of doing and dealing drugs. This habit begins after he is discharged from the military from punching an officer. The death of his father also makes matters worse. Blue sky meth can be spotted in Merle's bag of drugs a couple of times in the series. This is the same unique meth that only Walter White was capable of manufacturing in Breaking Bad and Jesse Pinkman. They left out Jesse. Perhaps this was a deliberate attempt by the writers to make viewers speculate that both shows were set in the same universe. They are both AMC productions after all. Uh, Just looking at the chats. Uh, So let's keep on going. His amputation and prosthetic hand. Merle is the first living character in The Walking Dead to have an amputation. Uh, I mean, come on, that's not a fact we, we've missed. It's, it's like right there. Uh, other living characters have also had an amputation, including the Governor, Herschel, and Aaron. Unlike the other characters, Merle's amputation is unassisted, and we really don't know how he did it. He had to amputate his hand... To cut it off by with a hacksaw in order to escape from an Atlanta rooftop where the survivors left him behind. T Dog tried to get him out, he dropped a key. Like Aaron's prosthetic arm that he sometimes attaches Morning Star to, Merle's prosthetic hand looked similar in appearance, the only difference was that he preferred to have a bayonet attached to his. Number 3 variety of firearms. The former antagonist changes firearms more times than any other character on the show. In fact, he rarely uses the same gun across episodes. Given his military background, this makes total sense. The first gun he is seen using the series are the Winchester Model 70 and the Browning High Power, which he fires from the top of the roof. The last gun he handles before his death is the MK 18 Mod O. He has laid his hands on a variety of other guns, such as the Walther P99 and the Colt MK 4 Series 70. Number two, Darrell inherits a motorcycle from him. Merle was the initial owner of Daryl Dixon's first motorcycle. Though he never rides it in the series, the bike is a is a Triumph Bonneville TR-6C chopper from the 70s. I did not know that. How many of you guys knew that uh, his motorcycle was uh, Merle's? I did not know that. I had no idea that it was Merle's uh, motorcycle. Now I do. The... Uh, I see Singer Chick is buffering again. Singer Chick, uh, it seems to you be it seems like you're having buffering issues every night with YouTube. Uh, it's your Wi-Fi, more than likely. Uh, that's what's causing the buffering. So if you want it to go away, maybe move closer to your Wi-Fi router, or see how the configuration is. But it looks like the Wi-Fi cannot handle your Wi-Fi cannot handle the video stream so hope that helps uh, Lizzie did know about the motorcycle okay uh, CC Wheezy writes it's when he got the drugs for T-Dog he said it was Merle's bike all right cool I totally missed that number one on the list the only secondary villain to renounce his bad ways When Merle Dixon chooses to try and murder the governor in order to protect his brother Daryl, he begins to transition from bad guy into an anti-hero. With these actions, Merle redeemed himself a little bit in the eyes of fans. And I think that's very nicely put. It could have been the start of a good redemption arc. But I posed this question to you guys many, many times. And the consensus that we have all reached is that at the end of the day, Merle, no matter how hard he actually tried, is a character that was too set in his ways in regards to the racism, uh, the misogyny, to actually be redeemable. So, you know, and I totally agree with that as well. But he does go out on the right side of things. You know, he does go out, you know, trying to do the right thing. So, anyway. Uh, Monopoly wants to know, when will season 10 be available on Netflix? That's been a burning question for months. And I wish I had an answer for you, Monopoly, on Instagram. The truth is, I have no idea. It was supposed to come out in October. But October has come and gone. And it's still not available on Netflix. Whatever the holdup is that is preventing The Walking Dead Season 10 from appearing on Netflix, I can almost guarantee you it's because of some rights issue. And they're not going to tell us that. So, moving on. uh, Where time is getting short. So, let me just see if we can just... Let me see what I have left. You see, I gather a lot of stuff and depending on how things are going pick and choose what we should talk about and some of these are pretty long and we don't have that much time left uh but let's just take a look at a review uh shook review stock and slash horror with a social media angle with the gore unfolding on zoom style calls and home surveillance cameras The story of online influencers being hunted by a killer is very 2021. I love how they put that. Shook opens with a smart satirical visual gag. It reveals the cast of characters, a bunch of female online influencers who pimp out various products, arriving at a swanky event complete with popping flashbulbs. An edit from another angle shows not all is as is, it's, sorry, as it seems, which pretty much sets the tone for the rest of the film. A thriller in the stock and slash tradition, but one that keeps pulling the rug out from under the viewer's expectation. After the first gory bit of wrong footing, literally, it involves a shoe as a weapon, Blonde beauty specialist Mia emerges as the main protagonist after she arrives at her family home in the suburbs to watch a lapdog Chico. And for the rest of it, you gotta register to read the article, which I did not do. This is on The Guardian. The movie is called Shook, and it looks like it's following in the tradition of Host via the Zoom call and other countless movies released over the recent years where we see footage from home surveillance cameras so that's on that 10 movies to watch if you're a fan of American Horror Story we're just let's see if we can quickly go this okay Murder House which is season one and The Conjuring alright I can see that number nine Asylum which is season two And 12 Monkeys. Alright. Number 8. Coven and The Craft. Yeah, that's a good comparison right there. The Craft was very popular back in the 90s. Number 7. Freak Show and Berserk. Ooh. Berserk is a movie from the 60s. I don't know how many of you guys might have seen that or not. Number 6. Hotel and 1408 great comparison there uh i loved american horror story hotel uh, of course asylum is my favorite uh season and i also love the movie 1408 stephen king novel made into a movie starring john cusack uh you guys know i'm a big paranormal movie fan and i absolutely love 1408 we discussed it fairly recently and uh it's a show that has two different endings You have the the, uh, the theatrical ending, and then the director's cut ending. I actually like the director's cut ending, rather than the theatrical ending. So, let's see, what's number five? Roanoke and the Last Broadcast, from 1998. Number four, Cult and Split Image, from 1982. Susan Sarandon. Number three, Apocalypse and 10 Cloverfield Lane that I do not see I'm sorry I've watched 10 Cloverfield Lane as well as Apocalypse uh, which is a really dark season of uh, American Horror Story I don't see the comparison there number two 1984 and Sleepaway Camp Sleepaway Camp if you haven't heard of it it's a cult classic Uh, Just one of those horror movies when it was made, they had no idea what it was going to become. To this day, it's a huge cult classic film. Uh, But they're comparing it to 1984. American Horror Story 1984, which was last season. 1984, out of all the seasons that we have gotten so far from American Horror Story, 1984 is my least favorite. It could be for a number of reasons. It did not have Sarah Paulson. Uh, The story for me growing up in the 80s and watching the slasher flicks was kind of played out and I didn't like how they did it. But, you know, if you want to compare any movie from the early 80s, uh, horror-wise, which they were all pretty much slasher films, you can compare any one of them to American Horror Story 1984. And number one on the list, Uh, overall, meaning the show overall, with The Invitation, 2015. The Invitation is a movie that doesn't get talked about much, but The Invitation is a great movie with a great concept that will really, by the end of the movie, have your jaw dropping. If you have not watched the 2015 movie The Invitation, add it to your queue, Uh, we'll be talking about it sometime here in the near future on an episode of Dead Talk Live. But it's a great movie. And what they're doing is they're comparing just the overall concept, all the seasons of American Horror Story with the movie The Invitation. That's up to your opinion. It can, can't be. It's up to everyone's own opinion. So today... We are going to be talking, let me go ahead and bring it up, and basically, (laughs) it's basically sequels that were better than the original, and when I was thinking about this, I came across an article that mentioned this, and I'm like, hmm, that's a hard one. It's really hard to find sequels that are better than the original. They're out there. I have seen them, but they're far and few between. There are, a lot of them are a good continuation of the storyline. Some others destroy the franchise, stop after a second, you know, a part two. Others are good enough to move on to a part three. So let's watch what Watch Mojo has to say on uh, some of the best horror sequels that have been out there. And if you don't know, this is Friday the 13th, part six. And I hope that I don't say this is what made uh, is better than the original Friday the 13th because it's not. But let's go ahead and watch this. Let me go ahead, find the damn play button, and let's listen in.
1: we better turn around. Why? Because I've seen enough horror movies to know any weirdo wearing
0: a mask is never friendly.
1: Welcome to Watch Mojo, and today we're counting down our picks for the top ten horror movie sequels that redeemed the franchise.
0: This time you're going to lose. My friends call
1: me Chucky. Oh my god, I love it. I've seen it five times and it still gets me every time. For this list, we'll be looking at sequels that brought back a horror movie franchise. We're not so much looking at the best horror sequels, as sequels that got their respective franchise back on track.
0: Let us know in the comments what horror sequel
1: you think we should have included on the list. Number 10. Origin of Evil. Let's begin. When Ouija came out in 2014, nobody was impressed by the movie. The consensus being that it was another forgettable horror flick about a supernatural force offing teenagers. Was there something I could have done? This isn't surprising given how hard it is to take a horror movie about a Ouija board seriously. But then, a prequel came out in 2016 called Ouija Origin of Evil. And critics and audiences agreed it was much better than its predecessor, something rare with movies in general. What is all the yelling? Look what she did!
0: Did you do this? Kind of a messed up ending. She's lying.
1: This was in large part thanks to director Mike Flanagan, whose previous work included Oculus and Hush. Number 9, Curse of Chucky. My friends call me Chucky. You're dead. No, you are. The Child's Play movies made Chucky the quintessential evil doll. However, Bride of Chucky and Seed of Chucky took Chucky in a campy direction, focusing more on gags than on horror. What? No! we di- you didn't! We didn't! Oh, sweet face! Come to mommy! Oh. That's not to say you can't have humor in a Chucky movie, but there's obviously such a thing as too much. The direct to video sequel Curse of Chucky is a return to form, bringing Chucky back to being a menacing icon rather than the joke that earlier sequels made him. I Hi, am Chucky! Wanna play? Speaking of getting back to basics, Alex Vincent, who played little Andy in the first two Child's Play movies, makes a brief appearance in a post credit scene, ensuring that fans of the series stay tuned for future installments. Play with this. Andy! Number 8, Saw 6.
0: Mr. Easton, what is this? It's a game.
1: The gold standard of torture movies, the Saw franchise dominated the horror genre in the mid 2000s with its gruesome traps and graphic kills.
0: And that's my way. And I brought proof.
1: But with a new film coming out every year, the series started to get old quickly, and the traps didn't seem as novel going four or five movies in. But in step Saw 6, which was a scathing critique of the American health insurance industry with one of the main stories about a health insurance executive that was put through one of jigsaw's cruel tests.
0: You must let go of one to save the life of the other. As you can see, the choice is not so clear when you are face to face with the people whose blood will stain your hands.
1: Saw 6 is often considered the best film since Saw 2 and it proved that the franchise wasn't completely out of ideas. At least not yet.
0: I'm really Number looking seven, forward to Final spiral. Destination
1: 5. The fun part of the Final Destination movies was watching the different ways that death would claim its victims with intricate Rube Goldberg-like steps.
0: I just… I don't want to miss anything.
1: But similar to the Saw movies, the Final Destination series had trouble coming up with ways to keep this premise fresh. However, Final Destination 5 was able to come up with memorable deaths such as the gymnastic scene and the eye surgery scene. Plus, the twist at the end was a nice way of bringing the series back to where it started. What's all that about? I have no idea. Number six, Annabelle creation.
0: What do you need? A lot of people didn't like this. Your Annabelle creation. The cursed was pretty doll damn made a spooky scary.
1: first impression in The Conjuring, which made things look promising when she got her own film in 2014. Unfortunately, that film wasn't well received with critics or audiences. There has to be another
0: way. There is.
1: I can make it right. However, Annabelle Creation came out three years later and was the type of movie we were expecting. A prequel to the original film. Annabelle Creation gives a tragic backstory to the doll and explains with greater depth how it came to be cursed. We said yes. And that's when it became stronger. Actress Lulu Wilson was in both Annabelle Creation and the Ouija prequel, which shows that she was someone to cast if you wanted to make a prequel that was an improvement over the original. Number 5, Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. Darren, we better turn around.
0: Why?
1: Because I've seen enough horror movies to know any weirdo wearing a mask is never friendly. Right.
0: Friday, Friday the 13th, the 13th part, part Six is one was franchise not bad. that isn't
1: afraid to go in different directions, but Part 5 might have gone too far with giving us a different killer to continue the series other than Jason Borges. <laughs>
0: For those of you who Luckily, saw Friday the 13th Part 6, by back Jason, Jason is technically no dead who is in brought in the back in a Frankenstein Jason lives, type does of way by a, a lightning bolt. A touch, does that make, make him a zombie?
1: The franchise did not continue in this direction beating a dead horse, like Nightmare on Elm Street did with Freddy. But we'll get to that later.
0: I mean, technically he's dead, but he's, and he has been reanimated.
1: Number 4, The Exorcist Three.
0: And her what made The Exorcist 3 great lose. was Brad Dourif, who played the Gemini the Killer and was also Chucky, time.
1: and Exorcist 2 And George C. Scott.
0: The interaction between those two is phenomenal.
1: Luckily, almost 13 there years they are, George after the disappointing C. Scott. follow-up, The Exorcist 3 came to save the day and restore the good name of the franchise. Based on the novel, Legion, by Exorcist author William Peter Blatty, Exorcist 3 focuses on Lieutenant Kinderman, a character from the original film investigating murders committed by the Gemini Killer. The film has got one of the most memorable jump scares in really? horror, and great performances by George C. Scott and Brad Dourif.
0: Brad Dourif was phenomenal in The Exorcist He's
1: III, I
0: think it's his best role. Number
1: 3, Scream four. Released 11 years after the original trilogy had ended,
0: Scream 4 was a commentary. We're getting a Scream 5. Let's see what other movies are on this list.
1: Kirby, played by Hayden Panettiere, and Jill...
0: We're running out of time. It's about... becoming you. We didn't know we needed the film, but it was an improvement... I'm really looking forward to Scream 5. Let's see what other movies are on this. For list. years,
1: the Halloween franchise had been a horrific mess right. with sequels that kept sinking to new lows. Curse of Michael Whether Myers, call-
0: oh, no, I didn't really like that too much. Zombie movies
1: Then Halloween 2018 came along, and all it had to do was pretend that all the sequels following the original Halloween never happened.
0: Halloween 2018 for me it paid off. Giving the
1: franchise a terrifying fresh start.
0: The perfect example for this kind of topic.
1: Horror fans are eagerly anticipating upcoming sequels Halloween Kids.
0: Halloween uh, 2018, just to put it mildly, uh, you know, the Halloween franchise has gone in so many different directions over the years. Halloween 2018 is the perfect example of how to rejuvenate a franchise. They did it perfectly. Of course, they brought back Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. John Carpenter was directly involved. They brought back a lot. Nick Castle, who played the original Michael Myers, played Michael Myers even if it was for one scene. Great, great, great film. And I can't wait for Halloween Kills. Anyway, guys, we are out of time. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. You guys are fantastic, as always. Please visit us on the web at DeadTalkLive.com. Visit our social media platforms using the name Dead Talk Live on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. Subscribe and follow, please. If you're there on YouTube right now, hit the thumbs up button on this broadcast. I'll be back with you guys tomorrow night. And we're going to be discussing horror documentaries tomorrow night. So make sure to tune in. Everybody stay safe. People out in Texas, please stay safe. I will see you guys again tomorrow night. And until then, remember, always stay walking.